This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. But I'm not the Sarah Welch Larson you're thinking of. No, I am a Sarah Welch Larson from another universe. Okay, and and what universe is this one? Is this the one where you have, you know, you can fly or you have special martial arts powers or... Oh, no, this is just the universe where everybody is (laughs) left-handed. So, listeners, we are going to be reviewing Daniel's new film, Everything Everywhere All at Once, this episode. We also got a great watch list segment for you coming up in the second half. We're going to be talking about the screwball farce... What's Up Doc, starring the inimitable Barbara Streisand. All that's coming up on episode 327 of Seeing and Believing. This is Wang. This is Wang. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. See where this story is going? It does not look good. What's happening? Yes, we're here at episode 327 of Seeing and Believing. And before we proceed, Sarah, I just have to make sure. Am I talking to Parallel Sarah still, or did you kind of snap back to our, you know, un- Sarah A? Sarah, Sarah Prime. Sarah please. Prime. Sarah Prime. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm here. I am, I am present and I am listening. Okay. Just wanted to make sure that things didn't get too confusing too fast. Although, listeners, heads up, you're going to want to buckle yourselves in because this is a movie that we're going to be talking about here in a second that is uh, going to be quite a ride. Yes. So yeah. there's there's a lot to talk about. So let's just jump right in. Uh, we are going to be discussing uh, what's up, Doc, in the second half. But first, we're just going to you know really dive right into a little movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is a title that writes some pretty big checks that these writer-directors are going to try to cash. Uh, Those writer-directors are Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. They're officially credited as Daniels. This is their follow-up to 2016's Swiss Army Man, which you may have heard of as that one film where Daniel Radcliffe stars as a flatulent corpse. (laughs) Everything Everywhere doesn't have quite so infamous a plot description, maybe because summarizing its plot succinctly may be impossible. Mm -hmm. Suffice it to say that this is a sci-fi adventure in which Michelle Yeoh and Ke Hui Kwan play a married couple on the brink in more ways than one, discovering that they might be the only people who are able to stop a powerful avatar of nihilism from destroying not just our universe, 
but every other alternate universe in existence as well. Along the way, there are off-kilter martial arts brawls, menacing IRS accountants, and bagels that are also black holes. So obviously, there's a lot going on in this movie. <laughs> so uh, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this, Sarah. We, we managed to catch this film together, mm-hmm. um, but we uh, that was a few days ago, and we didn't really have a chance to talk about our initial reactions, probably because we were both still processing it. So I'm really curious to get your take on this question. Do you think Daniels bit off more than they could chew with this film, or did they succeed in chewing everything, everywhere, all at once? <laughs> you know, for a movie that is like this packed, it's kind of a miracle that it doesn't collapse on itself. Um, I think that they both bit off a little bit more than they could chew, and then they proceeded to chew it with verve and style. And that's kind of my bag. So I was I was on board with this. Um, verve and style count for a lot. Yeah, they really do. Did it work for you? I, you know, I think that I'm in pretty much the same boat as you and that yes. I don't think that everything in this movie entirely works, but I really liked... I, I enjoyed my time with it, even when it wasn't entirely working. Yeah, yeah. It's so singular and there's so much going on. And incredibly, like, even though everything is coming from everywhere and from all directions, the story that was being told was one that I could tell, like, this was this was a story that only Daniels could tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the way that they told it was the way that only they could tell it. And I appreciated the movie purely on those merits, um, although for a lot of other reasons as well. Like, I, I like that they tried to do basically everything with this movie and at the same time it's got such a the movie's sort of working towards this really fine point towards the very end that I didn't quite see coming I so I thought I saw coming um and then as everything starts to sort of implode towards the end at the climax like I figured out what they were what it was they were trying to do and I, I feel like they pulled it off yeah and they really do kind of throw down the gauntlet from the very beginning. The yeah. The first shot of this film is we're seeing uh, this family, uh, Michelle Yeoh and Ke Hui Kwan, and their daughter, played by Stephanie Su, uh, are having some fun with the karaoke machine. It's kind of the standard uh, scene of domestic happiness. But we are seeing it as a reflection in a mirror mm-hmm. elsewhere in the room. And then uh, the Dan- Daniels push the camera in, push it in, and then there's a smash cut. The image of domestic happiness is gone from the mirror, and then the camera essentially pushes in through the mirror yes. into the present day. We're literally through the looking glass. Yes. And, I mean, that's basically them saying, like, we are going to get crazy here, and you're going to be along for the ride. And, I mean, that is quite a gauntlet to throw down. Mm-hmm. I was really pleased to not feel like well there were times where i guess i felt like it got a little bit self-indulgent we can talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm. but for the most part i i thought that i was 100 percent bought in and really enjoyed the the twists and turns that they take take the audience on yeah from that moment in the push in through the mirror i felt like i was in really good hands um there's a lot of lovely like circular imagery that's going on in that shot and then that's kind of repeated in the following scene and then over and over again kind of throughout the movie there's a lot of circles there's an everything bagel there are a lot of these like little googly eyes that keep popping up in different places but then there's a lot of just the way that the image is framed like 
you, it never gets as on the nose as having a circle behind someone's head as a halo. Like they never do that. And thank goodness for that. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of images where um, something will appear and it'll just show up as just like a gigantic circle or it'll the, the whole frame looks a little bit more circular than it does uh, rectangular. Um, and once you start seeing that repeated image, you start realizing like, oh, this is going to be a movie about like the cycle of the decisions that we made um, and how they go on to affect the future. And maybe we're in, we end up being sort of doomed to repeat them in some ways, even though this isn't necessarily a time travel movie. I, I still felt that cyclical um, model of the universe kind of being shown in the imagery of the movie as well. Yeah, well, at its base, this is a movie that's about um, existential anxiety about, mm -hmm. you know, is 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 the are the things that I do do they have any meaning? Mm -hmm. um, am I heading towards anything ultimately meaningful? Are my mistakes are are my mistakes? redeemable like mm, is, mm -hmm. is when i do something wrong is that just a bad memory that's going to haunt me forever or is there a way is there some way i can uh turn that around or is there some other reality where a version of me would not have made that same mistake and um i think the the central tension in the movie is the antagonist of of the film is basically saying like there may be infinite universes but in all of them you're all uh, you're bad in all of them there are bad things that happen in all of them people get hurt in all of them and at the end of the day you're going to die and be insignificant in all of them and on the other side of that is the message that maybe that's true but it's important to to love and be loved anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I think that premise of like everybody is bad in every single possible permutation is something that could get really like navel gazy or almost inert really, really quickly. And this movie doesn't do that. <laughs> this movie moves in more ways than one. Like there's a lot of action. I also found it personally very emotionally moving as well, especially when you get into that those moments of interpersonal connection in the face, I think, of nihilism. Like, I found that quite moving. Um, but also, I'm a sucker for a good action sequence. And I think everybody in the movie just about gets the chance to kind of, like, show their chops and be able to do a lot of good physical comedy and then also a lot of very good physical action as well. Yeah, th this is a movie that has... Uh, direct references to everything from everything from Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express and In the Mood for Love mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, Jackie Chan's uh, police story. You know, yeah. like the, there's an early action sequence where uh, Ke Hui Kwan's character, who we find out is a verse jumper, where alternate versions of himself can sort of inhabit his body and allow him to perform great physical feats that the our universe uh character would not be able to do so we get a scene where he's got this fanny pack <laughs> yes. and he uses it to take out an entire cadre of security guards and it is just a banger of a scene i it's a thing and, of beauty <laughs> and you were sitting next to me in the theater everybody in the theater just went wild for that scene it's so fun the uh daniels shoot it with you know verve is the is the mm -hmm. word that comes to mind again and you you're just you're you're engaged you're laughing you're thrilled by it mm -hmm. and that kind of almost allows you to bring your defenses down so that then the daniels can really 
bring in these heavier existential questions, kind of sneak them in under your guard so that then you're considering them while you're also having the time of your life. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of the strength of this is it's not just like a funny situation where Kei Hui Kwan pulls out a fanny pack and proceeds to like beat the crap out of a bunch of security guards. It's the way it's shot too. Like they know how to frame human bodies in motion, like a lot of full like distance-ish shots or medium distance shots where you can see the entire human body like in a fight with another person. Um, but the framing's also interesting. It's not just like square on, we're going to we're going to show people in profile. It's we're going to show people in profile, like doing interesting things. And then we're going to cut to something else where somebody else is doing something interesting. And then we're going to keep upping the ante with like things that you've seen elsewhere in the scene. Like this particular fight, um, the stakes get heightened by some objects from like a goldfish aquarium. <laughs> and I'm not going to elaborate on that because I want people to watch this scene. And the, the temptation to really talk about how great these individual moments are is yeah. overwhelming. But part of the fun is just literally not knowing what's going to happen from moment to moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I don't know. There's just so much specificity and so much like good detail that I I don't want to talk about the specifics about mm -hmm. this movie because I really do want people to see it for the first time, like completely unspoiled. But at the same time, I don't know, like there's there's a lot of really good like pieces that maybe we can talk about a little bit out of context, too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I really like how, you know, we, we talk about part part of the fun of daniel's work and this is this was true also to some extent of swiss army man though i think everything everywhere is the more successful film overall mm -hmm. but part of the the pleasure of watching their movies is kind of the seat of the pants quality like kind of mm -hmm. watching them walk that tightrope and really it's not entirely sure if they're gonna you know manage to stay on the rope they might just fall and, and break their neck but that there's a thrilling quality to that high wire act that you just can't tear your eyes away. And it it reminded me a lot of, of the short fiction of George Saunders, where uh, there's this surreality of everything that they're doing that uh, that is both funny, but is also kind of undergirded by a sense of urgency and, and emotion. Mm. And it just... I, I really enjoyed that. And it also made me, I don't know, I, I, I think about if Christopher Nolan directed a, a version of this movie, oh. there would be so much effort spent to explaining how verse jumping works, mm -hmm. the, the way the technology works, how it was discovered, what it feels like to verse jump. And we and there'd be six dialogue scenes where all of this is laid out for some meticulous detail. Mm -hmm. And Daniels don't do any of that. Mm -hmm. And that might be, you know, if you stop and think about it too hard, you're like, you kind of start to see, oh, well, you know, there's things that don't make sense or where did this technology come from and how, how exactly does it work? But when you're sitting there in the moment, it really doesn't matter. The, the flying by the seat of their pants quality carries the audience along well. And I think they do that partly because the filmmaking is so strong. Yeah, the pacing is great. I think if they did try to explain the technology or like why or how any of this works or why these specific people are in this situation to begin with, I think it would derail the movie. I kind of take a little bit of issue with the seat of the pants quality, though, because looking back on the movie, having seen it in its entirety, it's very clearly like well thought out and planned. So a lot of the action 
feels like it's coming out of left field when you first see it. But I think the seeds are planted beforehand a little bit. Like you see these googly eyes popping up everywhere, like earlier on in the movie. And then there's a throwaway line um, that explains that Evelyn's husband, played by Kei Hui Kwong, um, is the one who's just like putting googly eyes on everything. And then it kind of turns into a symbol for like self-knowledge in a way that looks like it's coming almost out of nowhere if you don't think about it in context. And then like there, there's a lot of other like jokes that come back um, after the initial joke was made like 30 minutes before. Like there'll be a, a version of that joke that's told again later that kind of compounds the original joke. So I, I spontaneous might be a better a better word than yeah, seat of the pants. Yeah, I, I guess w- um, point taken, I guess w- when I meet, when I say seat of the pants, I think it, it feels like that way in the storytelling, just in terms mm. of, you know, there are the the turns that it takes. It feels like almost. I don't know if you are into the improv scene, but it feels like watching a, a an improv show where somebody just comes up with something completely wild and ridiculous, and instead of sort of going, "Oh, that's that's too wild, too ridiculous," like let's let's get back to the matter at hand, mm-hmm. it just sort of follows that, mm-hmm. and it feels a little bit like that's this movie, not so much that they don't go back and sort of um, shape it into something where there are kind of these seeds and payoffs that are really nice, but more just in terms of the, in the conception of the story, they were utterly fearless, just like saying, hey, I just had this great idea. What if this happened? Mm. And they decided to put that in the script and then film it. They kind of fold it all in. Like and they're bringing in everything. You just described what intimidates me so much about improv because <laughs> my brain doesn't work that way. I mean, it, it just, it feels, it, it's it's very fitting for a movie about, it, you know, infinite alternate universes that there's such a sense of possibility in the experience mm. of watching this film that you, you, you literally feel like at any moment we could pop into... Uh, uh, you know, a martial arts action scene, or there could be a scene where a employee recognition award gets used in a very interesting way. (laughs) I I don't, so, I mean, this is probably the part where I'm going to kind of rag on the movie a little bit is I think that that uh, spontaneity that the Daniels bring to their project sometimes veers a little bit into Purility. It feels yeah. a little childish, like almost like kind of the the sort of family guy cutaways, where again, sort of like it goes to a random place you don't expect, and it feels kind of childish. Yeah. Um, and I I wish that in those moments the film and maybe throttled back on that a little bit more and focused a little bit more on I think the the heart of the story, which is Evelyn's relationship with her family and also with herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a valid criticism. And I think that's what keeps me from saying that this is a perfect movie. No notes. Uh, is that like, we're going to up the ante just a little bit too far <laughs> <laughs> to the point of discomfort, I think. Um, but I think that Evelyn's growth as a character and the way that the story tells that growth way overbalances, like everything else, like that's my one negative note I think about the movie is the purility and then everything else just works for me on all cylinders purely because it is just so bright and inventive and interesting and completely unlike anything I've ever seen before. Like when I go see a movie, what I really want to see is something new. And I think this gave that to me kind of in spades. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
it was something new in a way that I I hadn't really ever expected or known that you could do, which is kind of wild because it's also riffing on a lot of other like familiar movies as well. Like you mentioned Wong Kar Wai. I felt like I got a little bit of David Fincher in there as well. And maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of like the Matrix too. Definitely like the, the scenes with, uh, you know, the, the martial arts scenes felt like the, the Matrix agents. Yeah, exactly. And like... It didn't feel like it was making the reference for the sake of making a reference and stamping on whatever part of your brain says, aha, that's a reference that I recognize. Like, it felt like it was taking those elements as well and kind of folding them into the story in an interesting way, which kind of also gets at the idea of those parallel universes. Like, maybe all of those stories and all of those movies are also parallel universes alongside all of the other stories in this particular movie. And I just, like, I love that willingness to play with and pay tribute to your influences in a way that feels both respectful isn't the right word, but in a way that feels uh, like it appreciates those things and it's going to add something new to them as well. Kind of your yes and, I guess. Yeah. uh, It's not just just making a reference so that the audience can feel like feel like they're being patted on the head and told they're very clever for knowing who Wong Kar Wai is. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The scenes where Daniel's directly reference uh, Wong's work, I think, are um, just so emotionally affecting because up to that point, we've gotten to know Evelyn and uh, her husband, Waymond, so well mm-hmm. that when it kind of veers into the the unabashed uh, swooning romance of uh, Wong Kar Wai's work, uh, you, you feel it. In your bones, like yeah. you, because they they've spent so much of the of the film, um, you know, f- being slightly estranged from each other, you know, kind of caring about each other, but also kind of not knowing how to be married to each other anymore. And then when we see that that trademark kind of smeary nighttime Hong Kong cinematography the and green and the, lights, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's so lovely. And and I think this might also give us a good segue to talk a little bit about the performances because I think you know the the inventiveness is all very well, but it would be all too easy for a movie that's kind of all about filmmaking fireworks and storytelling backflips to kind of not ground the audience in anything human mm-hmm. so that you reach the end of the film and you feel like well I've had I've been entertained but I don't really feel anything particular about mm-hmm. what I've just seen this film I think especially thanks to Michelle Yeoh and Kei Hui Kwan yeah. uh, as as the central couple they're both so good and mm-hmm. I, I think they're what really is making makes the film work like gangbusters in the end oh yeah they're both they're both terrific um i think the there's there's a level of pain i think underneath both of their performances especially early on like the pain of being ignored the pain of sort of being shunted to the side both by the society that they live in and then also by each other probably not on purpose in any way but i think that that sort of undergirds like their individual growth um the way that they both hold themselves like when they're playing themselves like (laughs) evelyn prime or whatever you want to call her evelyn alpha um and then uh waymond prime like the way that they hold themselves versus the way that they hold themselves when they are channeling like other selves from other universes as well. It's just a terrific piece of physical acting too, because it's a completely different posture depending on like which universe you're, you're drawing from. You can tell immediately like 
who it is that they're playing off of, like what other possible life they could have been living. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it other than it's terrific. Quan has, you know, he, he's got kind of this, um, this, this fluty, uh, higher voice, mm -hmm. um, that he, um, when he's, you know, the kind of the more, um, meek Waymond prime, mm -hmm. it, it, he, he uses it such good effect to reflect somebody who's, you know, he's, he's never going to be the biggest presence in the room. He's going to be what a lot of people would think of as a doormat, mm -hmm. um, but yet there's there's such gentleness in in that performance um uh it, it makes you kind of think of that beatitude blessed are the meek like he he's kind of the embodiment of the the you know the meek inheriting the earth in mm -hmm. the end he's he ends up being so important to not just the plot but also to Evelyn's personal journey mm -hmm. um and and that's all in Quan's performance and in those moments when he kind of you know morphs into an action hero you know Quan yeah. he he changes his posture and he smolders and it's great it's fantastic yeah yeah I was also thinking a lot while watching this movie about Michelle Yeoh's hands and the way that she uses mm. them when she's a different character I've got something about this but go ahead oh okay yeah no she she like when she is herself from this original universe like she's the proprietor of a laundromat and you can kind of tell like the way that she holds things you can tell that she's used to like lifting and carrying things that are heavy but not really like doing much more i think with her hands other than that and then at one point she switches over to another like version of herself who studied martial arts and the way that she like flicks somebody aside with like a flip of her wrist and the way that she just sort of holds her hands like with poise like you get the confidence of that version of this character um in a way where she never has to tell you who she is or what she's been through. You can just tell. Like, she has worked very, very hard to get to this point. Um, and it just all comes through with just, like, a flip of the wrist. It's wonderful. There's a moment uh, towards the the end with Yo where she just uh, breaks my heart wide open. So she's she's in a confrontation with another character. Mm -hmm. And, they're, you know, in the tradition of a martial arts movie, you know, they they – you know, they separate for a moment and they kind of do like the, the martial arts pose, like the, you know, yeah. they move their arms and they kind of like, you know, strike the pose and, and kind of stare each other down. Her opponent, you know, kind of does what you, what you kind of standard expect. She, you know, she crouches and the, the arms go out and the hands are, are flat and they're, she's ready to do some damage. And, uh, Yo does basically the same same the same uh introduction to, mm -hmm. to that and then instead of striking that crouched pose she kind of just opens her arms and like yeah. comes like trying to welcome this person towards her and yo's like it's it's a great um it's a wonderfully directed sequence mm -hmm. but the way the just the expression on yo's face it's just so i mean it, it blast you back in the seat with maternal warmth I it's guess. not it's just so her great. arms it's her whole face that's open it's her whole face it's it's the it's the way that she moves into that pose just like the the perfectly calibrated um speed at which she assumes that position like it, it's it's a perfect it's like the platonic ideal of somebody beckoning you to to come and and be embraced and i think that's the thing that i love about this movie the most is that is it it is an invitation for that kind of connection like that's the whole point of the movie is that interpersonal connection like open hands and not fists you know instead of fighting 
maybe we can figure something out. And I just, I, I just, I adore that. I love movies that sort of flip the action on its head in a way that you don't necessarily expect. And I think that that pose in particular just sort of captures what it felt like to watch this movie. Like it starts off with a very action heavy premise and then it takes you in places that you don't really expect to go with an action movie. Yeah. It's, and in, there's there's nothing like it. Uh, <laughs> listeners, that is our review of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, I mentioned earlier that that title writes some br- pretty big checks. And I think Sarah and I can can tell you that this movie succeeds in cashing those checks. Yes. So if you've had a chance to see this film, it's in limited release, I believe, this weekend. But it should be going into wider release later on. So uh, run, don't walk yes. to see this film if you can. Once you do, of course, we're very interested in any of your thoughts. There's so much that we didn't even get to touch on here. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, join the conversation with us on on that one. You can email us, as always, at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. Don't go anywhere. In the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about What's Up, Doc? music you just heard was blessed by wayne john bradley welcome to the conversation the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there keeping the conversation about movies going this is uh one of my favorite parts it's becoming one of my favorite parts of the the entire show just kind of like digging into our virtual mailbox every week and hearing what people have to say and, and what they've been watching and what their thoughts are. Yeah. Um, as someone who is perpetually online and on Twitter way too much, it's also really nice to hear like a lot of conversations about the stuff that we've been thinking about and talking about. Like, I really enjoy talking about movies with Kevin. I would not be here if that were not the case, you know? Um, but I also really like and I also really enjoy um, continuing the conversation with all of you as well. So um, we got some lovely feedback uh, earlier this week about our previous episode where we talked about uh, my introduction to Barbara Stanwyck uh, when we watched The Lady Eve. So Christy Olson um, followed up and said that her two other favorite Stanwyck films also involve cons, uh, Ball of Fire and The Miracle Woman. So she said that she was excited for some Stanwyck love on the podcast this past week. Christy, I hope it lived up to your expectations. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with both of those movies. Yeah, she, uh, she, I think she mentioned a little bit later when we were kind of going back and forth on Twitter about how, you know, a lot of people like Lady Eve, but she thinks that, you know, she she likes how Ball of Fire kind of has this almost Snow White and the Seven Dwarves kind of quality to it. And that's very true. It's It's kind of like if... I don't know if Lady Eve is kind of the the slightly more caustic version of the story. Ball of Fire is much more like gentle, hmm. you know, almost I don't want to say fairy tale esque because it's not that, but it's just it's kind of a 
the same uh, a similar story only with a dip, slightly different lens. So I can definitely see what what Christy sees in that movie. It's a good one. Part of me wonders if we should just turn the watch list into just the Stanwick watch list. You, don't <laughs> tempt me. Don't tempt me. I I might do that. That's just how much I like Stanwick. But uh, Barbara Stanwick wasn't the only person to get some love on the in our mailbag. Joshua Wilson, who is a listener and occasional guest host on the show. Uh, actually tweeted at us in the form of a retweet way back in 2017. He he said, I know he made a lot of movies and I haven't seen quite a lot of them, but I think the Lady Eve might be the best Henry Fonda. So five years ago, <laughs> Joshua Wilson anticipated the argument that you and I were making about Henry Fonda's greatness in the Lady Eve. So I I really appreciate hearing, hearing about that and knowing that you know, Joshua, he, he's he's on the ball about this sort of thing. He knows what's up. He's a visionary. What yeah. can I say? <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, uh, thanks so much, uh, Joshua and Christy, for writing in. And for any listeners who uh, are kind of thinking about sending us your own thoughts, obviously, we love to hear them and uh, keep the feedback coming. And as always, uh, another way you can support us, if you don't feel like, you know, just uh, logging on to Twitter or writing out an email for us, you can support us by going to our Patreon and shooting a few of your hard-earned dollars our way. You can find that page at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Check it out. There's a funny video that Wade and I made uh, once upon a time to kind of plug the idea and you can also read up on the various tiers that you can pledge at which get you all sorts of great stuff it's a good time it's a way to support us and we love you forever if you'd consider it when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply What's up, Doc? I beg your pardon? We've got to stop meeting like this. I think you're making a mistake. You see, I just came in here for something for a headache. You're going to need an awful big glass of water to get that down. What? Oh, no, no. You see, I'm a musicologist. I was just testing this specimen for inherent tonal quality. Uh-huh. I have this theory about early man's musical relationship to igneous rock formations. Uh-huh. Oh, but I guess you're not really interested in igneous rock formations. Not as much as I am in the metamorphic or sedimentary rock categories. I mean, I can take your igneous rocks or leave them. I relate primarily to micas, quartz, feldspar. You can keep your pyroxenes, magnetites, and coarse grain plutonics as far as I'm concerned. I forgot why I came in here. Headache. Oh, yes, thank you. And goodbye. And now it's the part of the show called The Watch List. And this is something that we've just started up recently. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of the show that I've come to enjoy quite a bit. This is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that they love dearly and shares it with the other host who has not yet had the pleasure of 
seeing it before. Hopefully the pleasure anyway. I know that <laughs> yeah. we, we've already had a, a film where I was a little bit cool on dead pigs. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, there's a little bit there, but nothing so far where there's been a huge gulf in experiences here. I have weird taste in movies, so I'm expecting this to happen at some point, potentially, but maybe it'll be fun to have a fight about it. Too. I mean, everybody has weird taste in movies. That's I'm, fair. I'm perfectly okay with, with that. Keeps things interesting. This week, you were the one to select a film that I hadn't seen and that is Peter Bogdanovich's 1972 comedy, What's Up, Doc? This film features uh, Ryan O'Neill as Howard Bannister, a stuffy musicologist traveling with his fiancée, played by the ever-great Madeline Kahn, who visits a convention hoping to woo a rich donor for his latest research project. His life is thrown into chaos, though, when Barbara Streisand's daffy young con woman takes a shine to him and sets her mind on winning him over whatever the cost and there's a lot of cost (laughs) Um, this is definitely uh, a farce uh, par excellence so um, that's the movie that we're going to be talking about Um, I'm really curious to know since this was your pick Sarah Mm -hmm. you know what why do you love this movie so much and what uh, prompted you to pick it for this week? So this is actually the first screwball comedy that ever worked for me. Like I tried a bunch of other ones and like couldn't do it, broke out in stress hives, like had a really hard time with it. And this movie stresses me out too, but like in the good kind of way. I think I'd mentioned last week that Barbara Stanwyck could con me out of all of my money and I would thank her for it. I would do the same thing for Barbara Streisand here. So I think we're just having a nice double feature of (laughs) women that Sarah would gladly be conned by. (laughs) So um, I know The Lady Eve is one of your all-time favorites. This probably isn't going to quite get at that same level necessarily, but where does this stack up for you versus other screwball comedies you, you know uh it, it's no shame to to fall a little bit short when being compared with something like the lady that's just inevitable you know i i don't hold it against this film at all um yeah, i will say that you know while i i didn't love this quite as much as uh as i love the lady eve mm-hmm. i had a really good time with this film and i do think that i like it better than a lot of other screwball comedies i've i've seen i think the the movie that kind of bears the most resemblance to this one in my mind is uh, Bringing Up Baby, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn screwball comedy. That one just is a little bit, I don't know, there's something about that that I just couldn't quite click with. And this one has a lot of the same characteristics, but for some reason, uh, I clicked with it a little bit more. You know, there's kind of like the, the put upon stuff shirt guy who, you know, is... In his life is invaded by uh, a flighty young woman who kind of both teaches him not to be so serious all the time and also teaches him to love. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that Barbara Streisand is great in this movie. Ryan O'Neill is perfectly cast in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I enjoy this quite a bit. There, There's parts of it that, you know, comedy is so subjective mm-hmm. that there are parts of it where I were you know, the comedy didn't work quite as well for me as I think it was hoping to. But I mean, there are sequences in this film that are just, they're comedy gold. And everything is just firing on all cylinders. The cast is just so game. You can't help but be won over by it at least a little bit. I have a theory about bringing up baby versus this movie. And it's that the plot, the thing that keeps the plot moving and bringing up baby is like a live jaguar, a live leopard. I can't remember what big cat uh, it is, but yeah. it, it's a large jungle cat. 
It's a living animal. Um, and then the thing that keeps the plot moving in this movie is four of the exact same plaid overnight case that sort of get shuffled, like the way that a street con artist would shuffle like underneath a bunch of cups or something, and you have to try to figure out which one has which thing in it. Um, and it's... I don't know. I don't know if like one is more outlandish than the other or not, but I personally like was very stressed out by the leopard, <laughs> but <laughs> watching a bunch of people, each of whom wants a different overnight case for a very different reason. Like one has jewels in it. One has top secret files from the government. One just has Barbara Streisand stuff. One has a bunch of rocks, like watching those get shuffled around this hotel while different people are trying to steal different things from them, I think is what powers this movie in a way other than Barbara Streisand's entire, like, star power. She cannot be stopped. Um, but I think that that plot device works for me a little bit better because it's a little bit more background. It's not quite so central to the plot. Like, you can watch this movie and not know who has which case at any point in time, and it doesn't really matter um, because what really matters is the fact that Barbara Streisand is out to get Ryan O'Neill, <laughs> and she will have him <laughs> by hook or by crook. Yeah, so I, I think for, for me... The, the the roadblock I always come up with with movies in this vein, you know, whether it's bringing up baby or what's up talk, is the the invasion itself. I have a hard time getting past that. Like it seemed it's hard for me personally, and I realize this is a very this might be an idiosyncratic take, but um, somebody sort of invading another person's life and just sort of forcing them to deal with them. Mm. Uh, like I, it, it takes me a while to kind of get past how irritating I would personally find that. I don't know. Maybe there's more similarities between me and Howard Bannister than I'd like to admit. <laughs> um, but getting over that hump is kind of the trick. And with bringing up baby, I don't know that I was ever quite able to get over that hump of just not wanting the invasion to keep going mm -hmm. with this film. I feel like I was a lot more amenable to that and I'm not sure exactly why it worked better for me than, than in bring up baby. Cause they're just, they're, they're so close to each other. And I, I wonder if it might just come down to the farce in this film works better for me. I just, I'm a sucker for movies where people are charging in and out of different rooms and slamming the doors shut behind them and coming in at different angles. And, you know, somebody gets a pie in the face that I enjoy that. That's good. And I think that comic business works for me a lot better in what's up doc than the similar comic business in something like bringing up baby. That could be it. Actually. I think you're, discomfort with somebody invading somebody else's life might be why planes, trains, and automobiles stresses me out so much. Oh, I love planes, trains, and automobiles. I can't, I can't with that movie, which is unfortunate because it's one of my husband's favorites and I, I, I can't. Um, yeah. And maybe it's like the wild, I don't know, universe of jokes that's happening all at once in this too. Like there's, there's some weird parallels between, uh, what's up doc and everything everywhere all at once I think a little bit too because there are a lot of like one-off jokes that kind of feel like they're coming from another galaxy and then once mm -hmm. they're folded into the story they just kind of keep on doing their thing and like you can understand why they were brought in even if it's just for the laugh so um, I don't know there's a bit with some golf clubs that's really funny <laughs> that's just repeated throughout the movie where one character is just following another and for whatever reason he's got a set of golf clubs as cover and 
he just cannot keep a hold of all of them. And I don't know why, but now like every time I look at golf clubs, I find those hilarious. There's so there's a duo of very stressed out, very sweaty, balding men in this movie. <laughs> um there each of them is going for a different one of the of the plaid suitcases, but they're both equally sweaty, equally put upon, and equally hilarious. And I just I I like how Bogdanovich kind of orchestrates the various ways that their paths can intersect and the way they can unwittingly antagonize each other. Yes. Um I and I think that's kind of the joy of farce is just the the ways that different characters can bump into each other through no actual malice, but causing just utter havoc for other characters. And I think Bogdanovich and uh and his collaborators, particularly his editor, do so well just keeping things moving at such a clip that if one bit of comic business isn't working for you, it's okay. Just wait a little bit and something else will come along that will. Oh, yeah. Especially in the script. Like, there's so many jokes. Like, they're flying thick and fast. Um, I can never keep track of which ones are, like, which ones have been said and which ones are going to be said. And, like, I don't know. I feel, I feel like if one joke flies over your head, there's going to be another one almost immediately afterwards. But they're so elaborate. Like, there's a bit where Ryan O'Neill's character is, he's an ethnomusicologist, and he has a set of rocks that he assumes like prehistoric people played music on. Like that's his big theory and that's what he wants to get his grant for. And so he's talking about these igneous rocks over and over again. And then Barbara Streisand comes sailing in and she starts talking about different types of like metamorphic and sedimentary rocks. And she goes off on this riff of like, here are the different kinds that I appreciate, but these are the ones that you can leave. And the fact that she's able to just rattle all of that off so quickly and just kind of off the cuff, like it's something that she would just say in an ordinary conversation, I personally find hilarious there you know there's there's something there there's some dna shared in her character and and stanwick's character from the lady eve mm -hmm. in terms of so there's a there's an exchange between uh howard and oh gosh what's her name judy judy sorry let, let me back up jonathan sorry <clears throat> There's an exchange between Howard and Judy about halfway through the film where uh, she's essentially going through uh, a list of all the colleges that she's been to. And this yes. is how she's she's acquired her very eclectic uh, amount of knowledge. And uh, she's she's essentially just going full steam ahead. You know, oh, yeah. Uh, Streisand is, is speaking lines at a breakneck pace as – all good screwball heroines do. And at some point during her monologue, uh, Howard asks her a question, like a clarifying question about something. And she answers his question in the middle of her, of her monologue without missing a beat, almost as if she's anticipating what he's going to say. And I found that very similar to the way that Barbara Stanwyck is essentially shaping the universe around her by sheer force of will. Um, just, you know, um, using her charisma and her smarts to just sort of essentially be omniscient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it, it was fun to see Streisand employ a similar uh, amount of of charisma to the the screenplay here as well. Yeah, except she's an agent of chaos in this case. Like she's not creating anything around her. I feel like she's destroying everything, but there's no malice in it. Like, she's not intentionally making people crash their cars when she walks across the street. She's just walking across the street and people happen to be crashing their cars around her. Um, so, 
did the car chase sequence at the end of the movie work for you? It did. Okay, I, good. I I think that you know the I just I again you know like comedy is subjective, and at a certain point, there's only so much analysis you can bring to why a comic sequence works for you. Mm -hmm. It just other than it's funny, but I think um, a lot of the credit has to go to the way Bogdanovich. It's not just a car chase where, you know, cars are crashing into other cars and, you know, people are diving out of the way, you know, that's, that's what happens. But Bogdanovich um, orchestrates it all with such precision and timing that watching it, you know, like this, you know, the, the near misses and the timing had to be so precise just in terms of the way it was shot. Yes. That it's it's enjoyable to watch, not just because, haha, it's funny to watch a car crash into another car and, you know, somebody honk his horn. Mm -hmm. um, it's also just uh, very pleasurable to watch just because you it, it's it's um, a director working at the top of his craft and, and stunt people working at the top of their craft, stunt drivers working at the top of their craft. There's a, uh, the culmination of the, of the car chases where one of the, the sweaty balding men is in a, in a convertible and his cars, you know, careening off the edge of a pier. Yes. And there's a, a, a banner that, or, um, uh, canopy that mm -hmm. is set up in front of him and he's you know kind of his head is sticking up above the windshield and so his head kind of like rips all the way through this really long canopy before the car careens off the edge of the pier mm -hmm. and this is all shot in a single take he goes all the way through the canopy it rips completely in half and then the car shoots off the the pier and the stuntman like like is launched from the back seat through the air. So we essentially watch the car and the stuntman crash into the water after having driven through this huge canopy. And just that is a very impressive sequence. Oh, just in yeah. like the stunt work is incredible. I'm not really sure how they did that safely. No clue. And that's part of it, it, it's a it's again it's sort of a high wire act yeah 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 and whenever i think of that chase sequence i also think of the other big set piece within the chase sequence where there's people with glass crossing the street <laughs> plate and glass window to, yeah yeah they have to keep dodging cars and you keep thinking like a car is going to crash into this plate glass at some point and then it turns out that it gets broken through completely other means gets broken by the guy hanging a keep san francisco clean banner yes <laughs> It's just great punchline. It's so delightful. And it's just such precise work. Like everybody, like you'd said, is is on top of their game. And I think the other piece that I really, really love about this movie is the production design, uh, which was done by Polly Platt. If you haven't listened to this podcast at all, Karina Longworth has an entire season on Polly Platt and why she was so important to cinema, especially in the 70s and 80s and then into the 90s. Um, but Polly Platt did the uh, production design for this movie and also for Paper Moon after she divorced Peter Bogdanovich. Um, and she does incredible work, just absolutely exquisite work with a lot of like really excellent like little details and, and pieces. Um, so I've mentioned the overnight bags that keep getting mixed up. I think a lesser film would just have these be plain like brown leather satchels or something, but these have a bright red plaid pattern on the side so that you can keep track of them, but also so that everybody else will think, well, obviously there's only one of these bags, so it must be the one that I want. But that plaid pattern shows up elsewhere in the movie too. I, I was wondering if you're gonna if you were going to bring that up because one of my favorite little details in this movie is that uh 
uh, Howard Bannister's formal wear includes a cummerbund that is also the exact same plaid pattern. Uh And he's essentially like, he's just one more little satchel that is being (laughs) moved around and, and infutzed with by Barbara Streisand. And it's just, I, I love that little touch because it, there's, you know, Bogdanovich doesn't call any attention to it. You blink and you, you could miss it, but it's, it's there and it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's also in the opening credits, like the opening credits are in a book, like a physical book where someone's turning Very the pages old and the section of the book where there would ordinarily be like marbling right on the inside of the cover. Same pattern. It's the same plaid pattern. Um, and that's just a great, excellent lo- little piece of detail that nobody would pay attention to at all. But it's- yeah, it's it's just that's, I think, kind of what's great about this watch list segment. It, I, I kind of feel like talking to you about these movies, it's good because a lot of the times, you know, a movie doesn't necessarily have to be about anything deep or weighty per se you know it doesn't need to talk about the human condition in so many words but there's kind of a joy in just watching people working at the top of their game um and uh just very talented craftspeople create something that is just a pleasure to take in and is just a lot of more or less innocent fun (laughs) and i do say more or less because you know there's parts of this movie that aren't innocent person (laughs) but i think that it is it is overall like it's a movie that you can sit down with and have a guilt-free laugh over and that's just it's nice and it also it's kind of i don't know it's it's just it's just nice and it's nice to have nice things yeah i agree so successful watch list segment yeah i would say this is success excellent good we love to hear it <laughs> <laughs> now I'm, I'm excited about next week's watch list segment so listeners next week we are going to be reviewing uh morbius the the new comic book themed movie um from sony pictures and uh starring jared leto uh it's obviously has something to do with vampires so for next week's watchlist segment, I discovered to my dismay that Sarah had not seen Let the Right One In, mm-hmm. uh, the 2008 vampire film. Um, and I'm very excited to share it with you because I know you like you you, you like yourself a, a good vampire movie. You I like a feel like I'm movie. the seeing and believing resident vampire at this point. So let's bring it on. <laughs> let's watch more. So listeners, if you are interested in in also bringing it on uh, and just want to watch along with us for next week's watchlist segment, let the right one in is my pick. I can't wait to talk to you about it, Sarah. Um, but that'll do it for this show. Now, before we go, Sarah, you uh, obviously have written a book about. Uh, not vampires, but aliens. Yes. Becoming Alien is out there. Listeners, you can buy that from wherever books are sold, I, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sarah, you're going to be a guest uh, guest starring, guest hosting on another podcast to talk about that? I'm being brought on to the Perfect Organism podcast uh, to talk about Becoming Alien and specifically to talk about my stealth favorite out of all of the Alien movies, Alien 3, um, because that movie is celebrating its... 30th anniversary this year. So I believe they're planning on talking about that. 
I believe that episode will be coming out at the end of April on 426, aka Alien Day. Um, so you'll have a chance to seek that out when it comes out. And uh, I will be talking about Alien 3 and about becoming alien and about feminist theology and how all of those tie together. So it should be a good conversation. Sounds like a good listen. I'll have to make sure to tune in at the end of April for that. That sounds great, listeners. Highly recommend it to you as well. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larson, and we'll see you next week on the show. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.